0: You found your place there. Let's bow our heads before we begin our study of God's Word. Our gracious Father, we are so thankful to you for giving us your Word. It is each and every Sunday we gather around your Word to hear uh, from you and about you in the pages of your Word, Scripture. We thank you for giving it to us, the solid, unchanging, infinite, glorious, and inspired and infallible revelation of the truth. We thank you that you have entrusted it to us, that you have given it to us in our own language, and that we can. Come to know you by it. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand it this morning. And we pray that your word might serve to convict us and to encourage us and to exhort us to holiness and to godliness. That Jesus Christ may be glorified through us, through his church. And that is why we live and that is why we are here. And we pray that our time together studying your word might serve to accomplish that end. In Christ's name, amen. John chapter 18. It's been a couple of weeks. We had a two-week hiatus from studying John over Christmas and the holidays and now we are back in John chapter 18 to return our study. Uh, last time we were together in John we noticed uh, or we studied the the first of the two uh, the first of the five trials that Jesus went through on the night of his arrest and prior to his crucifixion and uh, we finished looking at the first one which John gives us which is the trial before Annas and then there is a second trial that John mentions in verse 24 when it says that they, uh, they took him from Annas and took him to Caiaphas, that's the second trial that John mentions, but he doesn't give us any details about it. And you remember that John is the only gospel writer that tells us about the trial before Annas. He mentions the second trial before Caiaphas, which the other synoptic gospels all mention the trial before Caiaphas. And then there is the trial before Pilate that begins down in verse 28. And then during his trial before Pilate, he is ushered off to his trial before Herod, and only Luke mentions Herod. None of the other gospel writers do. And then from Herod, he goes back to Pilate for the fifth of these mocked trials. And uh, that's the series of trials. And we we looked at the one before Annas. And then I read to you, we read together the account of the trial before Caiaphas, which John mentions in verse 24. And that brings us now to the denials of Peter. And uh, I, we observed several weeks ago that how, how John kind of takes us from one scene to another and back again as he's telling us about This evening, we begin with the scene of the trial in verses 12 through verse 14. And then Peter switches to the scene of Peter's, sorry, John switches to the scene of Peter's denial in verse 15 through 18, and then back to the scene of the trial before Annas, verses 19 through 24. And now we are back to the scene of the trial or the denial. Uh, You get words that rhyme and it's hard to keep them straight. Now we are back to the scene of of Peter's denial. And you remember how John separates the first denial and then he talks about the account of the trial before Annas. And then he gives us the second and the third denial. I think that that is John's way of showing to us that these denials by Peter, all three of them, took place over the course of this evening. Now, Matthew and Mark, they kind of uh, bring all of them together as if this happened in a rapid fire succession. And probably when we read in Matthew chapter 26, you probably got the sense that it sounded as if this was three questions, one right after another, and three denials. That's how Matthew presents it. John doesn't do that. John presents the first denial and then a gap of time during which this trial before Annas took place. And then there is the second and the third denial. And so it sounds from John as if you have one denial and then a gap of time, and then back to back the second and the third denial. But then if you read Luke, Luke says that between the first and the second denial, there is a gap of time. He says after a little while. Well, that agrees with John because after the little while in Luke is when John tells us about the trial before Annas. But then Luke says between the second and the third denial, there was about an hour's period of time, which seems different than John because John gives them back to back, right? And Matthew gives all three of them back to back. So what's going on here? These are not necessarily discrepancies, nor are they errors or contradictions. Um, When we understand how ancient literature was written, particularly the Gospels, oftentimes in the Gospels we see the Gospel writers um, is it called conflating when you bring things together into one location? Things that took place over a period of time. Sometimes the gospel writers will put all of that together and skip over things between those events for the purpose of presenting all of the material together because they have a theme, they have a lesson that they want to teach us. And so these are not contradictions in scripture, um, though they appear to, the, the wording is a little bit different in each of the gospel accounts. This denial of Peter, of, this denial by Peter of Christ is one of the very few events that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. Remember, John is very unique, and there are a couple of things that John records, a couple of events that John records that, that, none, uh, that are also recorded by Matthew and Mark and Luke. And this is one of those rare things that is recorded in all four Gospels. But here's the thing. When you read the accounts of all four of the Gospels, and if you just read them back to back to back, one right after another, The difference in language, the difference in wording, on the surface of it, it sounds like there are discrepancies or contradictions between them. The four Gospels are not four contradictory accounts. They are four complementary accounts of the life of Jesus. Not contradictory, but complementary. Before this morning, I thought to myself, what I should do this morning for the sermon is to go through an entire explanation of how we deal with apparent contradictions in Scripture, how we resolve them, what presuppositions do we bring to the table, and how do we read ancient literature? And then maybe deal with an example of that. And then next week I could talk about the denials of Peter, uh, and, that, and that way we could see that there are no contradictions between these accounts. But I decided not to do that. We're going to deal with these three denials. But next Sunday in adult Sunday school class, I have to teach—I well, get to teach adult Sunday school class. Not that I have to; I get to. Cornell's going to be out of town, so here's what we're going to do. Next Sunday, in adult Sunday school class, we're going to talk about how we resolve apparent contradictions in Scripture. When we come across things that seem to contradict each other, particularly in the Gospels, what presuppositions do we bring to the table? How do we read the accounts? Are there ways of harmonizing these things? And then we're going to take, as a case study, this very, this very text. These four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of Peter's denial. And we're going to see, are there really contradictions, or are these four complementary, completely harmonious accounts? So if that is mildly of interest to you, then you'll want to be here next Sunday for Adult Sunday School class. If that is not at all of interest to you, then you're going to want to avoid next Sunday's Adult Sunday School class. So today we're going to look at the denials and then the aftermath of these denials. And then we're going to look at the uh, some lessons that we can learn from Peter's denial of Christ. Let's look first of all at the denials. We have to go back up to verse 15 through 18 because, as I said, this is the first denial of Peter and it's separated from verses 25 to 27. Verse 15, Simon Peter, and this is just by way of review, since when we covered this, I mentioned we were going to be returning to it, and now we're returning to it. Verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And went through that, I mentioned to you that that was all the evidence points to The fact that this other disciple that is not named here is John, the author of this gospel. John, the son of Zebedee. He was known to the high priest and apparently he was able, he he, along with Peter, (coughs) followed Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane into the city of Jerusalem, into the residence of the high priest and into the very courtyard of the high priest himself. And John was there, but Peter was left outside. And after a period of time, apparently John realized that Peter was not there beside him as he had been all the way through the trip from the Garden to the city of Jerusalem. So John went to the doorkeeper and asked the doorkeeper to let Peter in, which the doorkeeper did. Now, John mentions here in the text that this other disciple, which is himself, this is his way of putting himself into this narrative, that this other disciple was known to the family of the high priest. In fact, so well known to the family of the high priest was John, the author of the gospel, was John that he was able to just go up to the high priest, slave girl who kept the door and say, this is my friend Peter, let him in. And this slave girl, without consulting the high priest, trusted John enough and knew John well enough that she was willing to let Peter in, somebody that she did not know, into the courtyard of the high priest along with John. That's how well John was known to the family of the high priest. So Peter and John are there in the courtyard. Verse 17, Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the accuser in the first denial is the same slave girl who kept the door of the high priest's courtyard. So here is likely what happened. Sometime after the slave girl let Peter in at the at the request of John, she noticed Peter, who, verse 18 says, was standing over by a fire with the soldiers and the other slaves, warming himself because it was cold. She noticed Peter was there, and she saw that he was there, and she recognized him as the one that had come in with John. Now, the slave girl who kept the door knew John. She knew that John was a disciple of Jesus. Jesus was probably in the courtyard at the very time, possibly being questioned or prepared to be questioned by Annas. And she put two and two together. Peter knows John. They are good friends. John asked to get Peter in. She knew that John was a disciple of Jesus. And putting two to two together, she reasoned that Peter must also be one of the followers of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus. So sometime after letting Peter in while he was warming himself with the soldiers by the fire, she saw him there. She recognized him. And she brought up this conversation. And she asked him, verse 17, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Asking him if he was a follower of Jesus if he was a disciple of Jesus, if he knew Jesus. Now, according to Luke, this... Uh, oh, sorry, I thought I had written down here the different wording that the other gospel writers used to reference this first denial. Um, one of the gospel writers mentions that the, her, the, the essence of her question was, Do you know this man? And Peter denied it and said, I do not. I am not. And not only do I not know him, I am not one of his disciples. And he just flatly denied it. Now, the gist of the slave girl's question was, surely you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Expecting kind of a no answer, giving Peter the opportunity to say no, which would have been the most natural response to the way that she asked the question. And Peter took the opportunity to deny it, which, was den- the such, which denial was suggested in her very question. He took that opportunity and he denied that he even knew Jesus. And he just simply said in verse 17, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. So this took place, remember, in the courtyard of the high priest. This took place around a fire. The slaves were there. The enemies of Jesus are there. There are some soldiers there. This is quite a crowd, we would imagine, that is gathered in the courtyard of the high priest. And what Jesus appears to have been from the other gospel records, Jesus appears to have been in the very same courtyard being questioned by Annas right after this event, right after the first denial. Now we move on to the second denial, verse 25. Now Luke says in his gospel, before he recounts the second denial, that this happened a little while later, which agrees with John that there was a gap between the first and the second. A little while later, Luke says. Oh, also, after the first denial, Matthew says... No, it's Mark. After the first denial, Mark says that Peter left the fire and went out onto the porch. Matthew says that after the first denial, Peter left the fire and went out to the gateway. Now, what does that mean? Porch or gateway? I don't know. It was probably a porch under a gateway. That's how we would resolve that. As it were, whatever whatever the re, whatever the the structure of the place was where Peter went, he left the fire where he was recognized because of the light, and probably wandered off somewhere where he wouldn't be readily recognized, somewhere darker. And he went out by the porch, out by the uh, away from the fire where he wouldn't be recognized. At some point, Peter wandered back into the courtyard, and next to the courtyard where he was again recognized, and this is the second denial, verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So between the first and the second, we have Peter leaving so that he wouldn't be recognized. But eventually, Peter came back by the fire again, which seemed to have been a dangerous place. And he was recognized there again. So they said to him, are you not also one of his disciples? Are you now? Matthew says. uh, Sorry, I want you to notice the accuser. Notice the, the different the different accuser. This is not the same slave girl, but Matthew and Mark both say that it was another slave girl. Luke says, and another said to him, not indicating that it was a slave girl, but that it was somebody other than the person who had accused him or questioned him before the first denial. John says, they. They said to him, verse 25, they said to him, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, John says, they said it. Luke says, another said it, indicating a single person. John seems to suggest multiple people. And Matthew and Mark both say it was a slave or a servant girl. See, this is the type of discrepancies or contradictions. Would you call that a contradiction? One person says it was an individual. Somebody else says they said to him. Is that a contradiction? I don't think it is. Let me give you a scenario, an, an example. Let's say that after the service today, uh, Lanny and Vince and Jade and Taylor come up to me. And they, uh, uh, Lanny has put this idea together that he wants to go out for lunch with a group of guys. And so he comes up and he asks, and all four of them are standing there. And Lanny says to me, hey, we're going out to lunch this afternoon. Would you like to join us? And I say, no, I can't. I'm teaching a membership class this afternoon, so I can't do that. Uh, maybe another time. And they leave and they walk away. And then my wife comes up to me afterwards and says, hey, I saw the group of guys stand there talking to you. What was that about? And I said, well, Lanny wanted to know if I wanted to go out for lunch after the service today. And I told him I couldn't, but maybe another time. And then we get home. And then Shepley says, I saw a group of guys talking to you today after the service. What was all that about? And I said, well, they wanted to know if I could go out to lunch after the service today. But I can't. Now, if Deidre and Shepley were to compare notes and she were to say, you said it was Lanny, and Shepley were to say, but you said it was they, is that a contradiction? Or is it possible that I am being completely honest in both of those accounts, right? I'm being completely honest with both of those accounts. It was a group of people, Lanny being the chief spokesman for the group, asking on behalf of the rest of them if I would like to join them after lunch. I think that we are for lunch. We have the same thing going on here. You don't have a contradiction. You have probably the slave girl who recognizes him and begins to question him. Others join into this and are listening, taking the side of the slave girl, but she seems to be the one who initiates the conversation. So John says it was they, indicating that she probably spoke on behalf of a number of people around the fire who questioned Peter regarding this. And the other gospel writers indicate the actual one who was probably doing the speaking on behalf of the group. That's the type of stuff that we get to go through next Sunday, if you're bored enough on Sunday morning to be here to join us for that. All right, so listen to Peter's denial of it. According to Matthew, Peter says, I do not know the man, indicating that he was denying his association with Jesus. Mark says, quote, he denied it, but doesn't give us an actual quotation from Peter. And Luke says, man, I am not. And John just records that Peter said he denied it, saying at the end of verse 25, I am not. Now, all four of those gospel writers probably capture or summarize exactly what the gist of Peter's denial was, which was not only am I not a disciple, but I do not even know the man. All they had asked him is, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Peter, now for the second denial, goes one step further. He doesn't just deny that he is a follower of Jesus. He actually denies even knowing Jesus, which he didn't have to do. And anybody standing around probably would have been able to, to recognize that that was a lie right on the surface of it. Anybody standing there could have said, then what are you doing here watching the trial if you don't know him? What, why are you inside the high priest's house? But Peter goes beyond even just denying that he is a follower of Jesus to denying that he even knows him. I'm completely ignorant of him. He didn't even want to admit or confess that he even knew Jesus, let alone that he was a follower of Jesus. And now the third denial. Look at verses 26 and 27. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now here, notice again who the accuser is. According to John, it's one of the slaves. According to Matthew and Mark, the bystanders, Said to him. According to Luke, Luke just says, another man said to him. And John says it was one of the slaves. Now you put all that together, and what do you have? You have a slave who was one of the bystanders who was another man. So it's not a servant girl slave, it's a male slave. See how these are complementary accounts and not contradictory accounts? We don't have to choose between which gospel writer got it right. We simply have to put all the information together and recognize that all four men are giving us a glimpse as to who this third accuser is. It was a bystander man who was a slave. But now the accusation has been ratcheted up just a level because this one seems to have been an eyewitness, at least he's saying that he is an eyewitness, of seeing Peter in the garden. Look at what John says in the end of verse Uh, 26. This this slave was a, a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, and he said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? So this slave must have been out with this large group that came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and saw the face of Peter. And do you think that this slave might have recognized Peter being a relative of Malchus, who John says in verse 10, that Peter drew his sword and struck the high priest slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Now, if you watch somebody draw a sword and try and take the head off of one of your relatives and took off his ear, and then you watch Jesus heal that man's ear... Do you think that the face of that man who drew the sword would be etched in your memory for just a bit? It would be, right? You would remember that face. Especially if they were trying to take the head of your mother-in-law or your father-in-law off. You would remember that face, right? This would be etched into your mind forever. This person saw Peter in the garden. Saw Peter draw the sword. Saw Peter try and take his cousin or relative. I don't know what the relationship was, but his relative's head off and cut off his ear. He watched all of that unfold. Did I not see you in the garden? So now you have not just a slave who's putting two to two together. Oh, he knows John. John's a disciple of Jesus. Maybe they're disciples together. Uh, you now you have somebody who's not just suggesting that Peter being there might be also a follower of Jesus. And that's why he's there. Now you have somebody who was an eyewitness of the events in the garden. And when they showed up at the garden, Peter was there with John and with Jesus in the garden. And Peter tried to defend Jesus with the sword. And he watched all of this unfold. Now the accusation, now it, we're, can you recognize that that's at a whole new level? Now, that would mean that Peter has far more on the line now than he's being confronted by an eyewitness who saw him do that. Now Peter would really be filled with fear. And he would be filled with fear, not because being a disciple of Jesus or a follower of Jesus was illegal. It wasn't at this time. You could be a Christian, you could be a follower of Jesus. That wasn't illegal, it wasn't against the law. It wasn't a crime as of yet. But, assault Resisting arrest and trying to take somebody's head off with a sword, those are crimes. Those are crimes. And now you have an eyewitness to Peter committing a crime in the garden and Peter is right in the courtyard of the high priest. And an eyewitness is standing there. And this time when Peter denied it, Matthew and Mark mentioned that Peter used profanity and he began to swear and curse and deny deny that he knew Jesus. According to Matthew... This witness said, Surely you too are one of them, for even you talk, even the way you talk gives you away. Mark says, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. That's the, that's the words that they used according to Matthew and Mark. Um, They were indicating that because of his accent or because of how he spoke, that his words betrayed him, that surely he was one of Jesus' disciples, and they could tell by the way that he spoke. Um, And the language that he used, maybe the language that he used or the accent that he spoke with. And Luke says, Certainly this man was also with him. In the garden is the assumption from Luke, and he is a Galilean as well, indicating that there are two things that are indi- that are indicative of Peter's relationship with Jesus. Not only that he was in the garden with Jesus, he was with him, one of his disciples, but also that Peter, because of the way he spoke, betrayed the fact that he was a Galilean. He was from the north, indicating he was probably one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter denied it. Peter denied it. According to Matthew and Mark, Peter began to curse and to swear. Um, probably wanting, if, if they were looking at his language, saying your language suggests that you were one of his, Peter would immediately use language that might suggest that he is not one of his. And so he began to speak like the fisherman that he was and denied that he knew him. Verse 27, Peter then denied it again and immediately a rooster crowed. And this is the aftermath of it, a rooster crowed. That was a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus gave back in John chapter 13, verse 38, when Jesus, answering Peter's boast that though all may forsake him, Peter would be willing to die. Wherever Jesus would go, even if I meant dying, Peter would be willing to do that. I would lay down my life for you. And Jesus said in John 13:38, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And Luke records that while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So as Peter was swearing and cursing and the words are coming out of his mouth, the rooster began to crow. And the rooster crowed the second time according to Mark. And then... To realized what he had done. I, I like the way that John just leaves it hanging there. And immediately a rooster crowed. As if we're all just supposed to stop and say, Selah. Just stop and think about that for just a second. And a rooster crowed. And at that moment, I think that all of the events and all of the reality of that whole evening would have come crushing down on Peter's conscience. You can imagine what that was like. J.C. Ryle writes this, But the bird's familiar crow no doubt sounded in Peter's ear like a clap of thunder because it awoke him to a sense of his sin and his fall. And to add insult to injury, Jesus must have been in the courtyard with Peter that evening while all of this was going down because Luke records in Luke 22, verses 61 and 62, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So while Peter is speaking, the rooster crows, and immediately Jesus turned and looked at Peter. That eye contact would have crushed you, wouldn't it? He wept bitterly, and he went out and he left the place, having denied his Lord. That Just the guilt of that and the reality of what he had done would have been enough to crush ordinary men. Peter felt the guilt of that. His guilt, unlike the guilt that Judas felt, did not cause him to commit suicide drive him to death. The guilt that he felt drove him back to Jesus. That's not the end of the story for, for, for uh, Peter because John, though John doesn't record him weeping and John doesn't record Peter leaving there that evening, the other gospel writers do mention that he wept and he wept bitterly and he left there immediately and he went out. John doesn't record any of that, but John does record that Peter was later in chapter 21 restored to ministry when the Lord con- forgave him and Peter admitted what he had done and there was a, a very loving exchange between the risen Lord and Peter and he was restored to that position of ministry. And that is the grace of Christ. Now, that's the aftermath. So what is it that we learn from Peter's denial? Let me give you six things. And don't panic. These six will go by faster than you might think. Six things. First, even great saints with great privileges can sin severely. Even great saints who have been given great privileges can sin severely. There's no doubt that Peter was a saint. There's no doubt that he was a believer. He was cleansed of his sin. He had a relationship with Christ. He was justified. He was a righteous man. He was a godly man, but he was still a weak man. And even great saints who have been given great privileges, like walking with Jesus and seeing miracles and hearing his teaching firsthand and, and listening to Christ and being friends with him and being part of the inner circle can sin and sin severely. And so in that sense, Peter's a warning to every last one of us that there will never come a time in your life prior to to death, there will never come a time in your entire life that you will ever be at a point where you can rest securely in the fact that you are now beyond sin and beyond falling, beyond temptation and beyond making a complete hash or mess of your life. None of us are ever in that position. Even great saints, even mature saints, can sin, and they can sin severely. Sometimes it's easy, not sometimes, but it is easy to be very critical of Peter and to pile on to Peter. Um, Peter was a man who was impetuous. He spoke before he thought. Um, He was caught up in hypocrisy. He was a man who just spoke his mind and said whatever came to his mind. Uh, that was the type of person that Peter was, and we see Peter a lot in the Gospels. And so there's a lot of fodder for us to throw at Peter and to criticize him and be critical of him and to think that we're much better than Peter. And yet I don't think it's right for us to pile on to Peter and to think that we are so much better than, than he is because of all, the, of all the prominent people in the New Testament, Paul, Peter, and all of the ones other than Jesus, I see more of myself in Peter than I do in all of the rest of them. When I look at Paul, I see a man who even before his conversion was a, a, a an ambitious energetic, um, tremendously gifted, tremendously talented individual who lived an outwardly blameless and outwardly righteous life, who sought to please God with all that he did. He was passionate about it. He conformed his entire life, outwardly at least, to the law of God. He was a man that was born into means with a lot of privileges. He had a great education. And I look at the Apostle Paul and I say, there is nothing in that man's life that I can relate to. Nothing. I wasn't born into privilege. I'm not gifted. I'm not articulate. I'm not a great staggering intellect. I'm not the genius that Paul is. There is nothing in Paul that I can relate to. But when I look at Peter, it's like looking in a mirror In many times, isn't it? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but just like an evangelist would say, raise your hand in your heart if you can relate to this. How many of you have said, how many of you have said in one breath the most profoundly truthful, profoundly wise thing and the very next breath said something so staggeringly stupid that even you are amazed that it came past your lips. Anybody here can relate to that? That's in your heart, Jerry. Don't raise your hand. Just raise your hand in your heart. Matthew chapter 16, when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a profoundly truthful, profoundly wise thing that was revealed to him. Amazing. And then Jesus said, That's right. And I'm going up to Jerusalem where I will be crucified and beaten, handed over into the hands of the Gentiles and on the third day I'll rise again. Peter's the next words out of Peter's mouth, what are they? Lord, this is not going to happen to you. What you said, that's not it. Let me tell you how this is going to come out. And Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. Because you're mindful of the things of men, not of the things of God. Has anybody ever been caught up in hypocrisy like Peter was in Galatians chapter 2 where you believe one thing and teach one thing and yet you're living entirely differently and had to be confronted by a brother? Anybody ever find yourself in that position? Has anybody ever found yourself in the position of thinking at one moment that you can conquer the world in your strength And yet, at the very next moment, feeling like you are being rolled over by the world, like Peter was. I will die for you before I deny you. And hours later, he is denying the Lord three times. Even the most godly, even the most mature, even the most sanctified of saints are prone to sinning like this. And so, Peter is a warning to us that we never, we always take heed lest we fall, we always examine ourselves. And look at ourselves and realize that if, but by the grace of God, I would deny Jesus like this every moment of every day, it is His grace that keeps us in salvation and keeps us from doing this very thing. Second lesson that we learn is that pride comes before a fall. We know that proverb, that pride goes before a fall. We know that, we understand that. And Peter's an example of that. I will never deny thee. I will die before I I will die before I ever deny you. I, I'm willing to die for you. No, no, Peter. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And that was Jesus' prediction. And Peter, in his pride, thought that he was strong. And listen, those who believe and understand that they are weak are stronger than those who think they are strong. Those who think they are weak are stronger than those who think they're strong. Because we're all weak. And your strength is recognizing how weak you are. That's what our strength is, to recognize how weak we are. It's not to get to the point where we suddenly realize that we are strong, and we are strong, and we think we're strong. That's not strength. Strength is understanding just how frail and weak we are. And to understand that it is pride that goes before a fall. And just when we think that we are confident enough to stand on our own and face any foe, that's when we face the foe that we least want to face. The third lesson we can fall before even the least intimidating of foes. We can fall between, before even the least intimidating of foes. Who was the person who questioned Peter's first denial? Slave girl. Who questioned him the second denial? Another slave girl. And who questioned him before the third denial? Another slave. A slave, girl. A slave, girl. And another slave, a man. Not Herod. Not Pilate. Not Caesar. Not Agrippa. Not Festus. Not Felix. None of those. He wasn't standing before the kings of the earth. He was standing before a slave girl. Peter, of all men, should have said, Yeah, not only do I know him, but I am one of his disciples. What is that to you? You're a slave girl. She was not an entrepreneur. She was not a, a business magnate. She was not anybody important. She wasn't a journalist. She was nobody. She wasn't even Peter's boss. She not even related to him. She was a nobody. And yet Peter fell before her. Peter denied Christ before her. It is possible for us to fall before even the least intimidating of foes. This is the story of my high school years. I got saved in June of 1987. And I spent my high school years not living for the Lord. Denying Christ more often than I stood for Him. Because I was fearful. Fearful of whom? Now, 25 years later, I look back on it. I look at some of the people that I was scared to to be bold about my faith in front of. And who are these people? They're nobodies. They're nobodies today. They were nobodies back then. So why was I fearful of them? And listen, the person that you are tempted to deny Christ before tomorrow, in 25 years, you will recognize how utterly foolish that is and how they are absolutely nobody. Nobody. And we ought to remember that if... I have the favor of the king and I am pleasing to the king, then it doesn't matter what the peasants think. It doesn't matter what God-haters think. And when you deny Christ before somebody, they're one of two things. They're either a believer or they're an unbeliever. If they're an unbeliever, they're either going to be a believer someday, in which case you have nothing to fear, or if they're an unbeliever, they're going to be in hell perishing under the wrath of God someday, in which case you have nothing to fear. So why would you deny Christ before somebody who is going to suffer God's wrath? Somebody, a God-hating pagan, who hates the Lord Jesus Christ and stands against everything that he is. Why would you deny Christ before him? It is possible for us to fall before even the most unintimidating of foes. And fourth, we learn here about the progress of compromise. The progress of compromise. This is what we see in Peter. Started out small, right? Surely you don't know him. No, you're right, I don't. Second denial. Uh, I don't even know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. Not only am I not a follower, I don't even know him. Third denial, blasphemy, bleeping, bleeping, profanity and swearing. I do not know the man. You see the progress there? Starts off with something small and eventually it grows to something much bigger and much greater. This is what sin does. This is what compromises do. One small compromise becomes a medium-sized compromise. That medium-sized compromise becomes a big compromise. And that big compromise becomes a complete capitulation to the culture and to the enemy. But it always starts with something small. John Calvin commenting on this said this. At first, the fault will not be very great. Next, it becomes habitual. And at last, after the conscience has been laid asleep, he who has accustomed himself to despise God will think nothing unlawful, but will dare to commit the greatest wickedness. Today, in our day, we have cultures, mainstream denominations, that are trying to ordain practicing open homosexuals to pastoral ministry. And we wake up and we say, how does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It starts with those very same people 80 years ago saying, you know, we're not absolutely certain that everything in Scripture is true exactly as it is true. And then they take a little step and they say, maybe the world was not created in six little 24 hour days, only 6,000 years ago, like Scripture teaches. Maybe it took millions and millions of years. Maybe God used evolution. Maybe science is true. Maybe we can't trust the Bible's authority after all. And then the very next step is, maybe we should consider ordaining women to pastoral ministry. Even though Scripture says what it says, but since we can't trust it, we've already abandoned the foundation of authority, we will ordain women to these positions of ministry. And then the very next step is, maybe we should have a conversation about ordaining homosexuals to ministry. And the very next step is, right off the edge of the cliff, let us go ahead and ordain homosexuals to pastoral ministries. Where did that start? 80 years ago, with questioning the authority and the infallibility of Scripture. The very same denominations today that want to ordain openly practicing homosexuals to pastoral ministries are the denominations and the people that 40 years ago wanted to ordain women to those positions of ministry. And 40 years before that, they denied the infallibility and the authority of Scripture in the church. That is the progress. It never starts big. It always starts small. Always. But before long, you're discussing things that are huge. And and matters of eternal consequence. That's where it begins. Number five, we learned that lies multiply. Matthew Henry said. uh, Matthew Henry said lying is a fruitful sin. By not that not that it produces good fruit, but it's a fruitful sin. You know why it's a fruitful sin? Because lies, by their nature, multiply, and they reproduce. That's what lying is, and and that's what Peter did. His first lie required a second lie to cover it up, which required a third lie with with profanity in order to cover that up. Lying is a fruitful sin. And when you lie about something, then you find yourself having to to tell another lie, to hold that lie together. And every time you lie to hold together your lies, you are invested more deeply and you have more to confess and more to give up and more to turn from and more to lay down than if you had just told the truth to begin with. But every lie adds to your guilt. It adds to what you have to forsake and you become more and more invested in it. And here's the other trickery with lying. Every lie becomes easier to tell than the previous one. So the more you lie, the easier it becomes to lie about it because you become convinced in your own mind that what you're saying is actually true. And every lie invests you more and more into the deception, making repentance and forsaking it more and more difficult over time because every lie adds to the previous one. It adds to the guilt. It adds to your bondage to that deception. And every lie is easier to tell than the previous one. Lies multiply. Maybe that's why multiply ends with lies. I didn't plan to say that. That was incredibly stupid. Number six. And this is the last one. Christ can use those who fall. Christ can use those who fall. This was not the end of the story for Peter. The rest of the story is in verse twenty, chapter 21 and all that follows. The first roughly one half of the book of Acts is about Peter and his ministry and his fruitfulness and how God used him to establish the church in Jerusalem. We find out in Acts chapter 15 that Peter was one of the pillars of the church. He was one of the leaders of the church. He was a gifted man, a godly man, who wrote two books of the New Testament. And he was a man who would eventually die for the very faith that this night he denied. He would eventually die for that. Christ can use fallen saints. Christ can use those who sin. And may God preserve us from such denials and from such sin and dishonoring his name in that way. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the warnings that you give to us in scriptures. You give them to us through good examples and bad examples. And we don't want to pile on Peter and what he did here. We see ourselves in there. We know that each one of us who has known Christ has denied him on multiple occasions. Not just three, but more times than that. And We confess this and we acknowledge it. We hate it. We see it in ourselves and we hate it. And we pray that you give us boldness and grace to be bold witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. May our knowledge of Christ and who he is and our relationship to him be more precious to us than all that this world can offer and all that this world might propose to us. May be glorified through our obedience and our trust and our confidence. Forgive us where we have failed and give us strength to walk with you and to honor you and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all of that honor and so much more. Thank you in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.